All right, well, if you will, please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 19. Acts 19. You can find that on page 928 if you're using one of the Red Pew Bibles. And this morning, we are going to be looking at verses 1 through 7. <clears throat> so Acts 19, 1 through 7. Well, in the game of chess, players move their pieces to try and capture their opponent's king. That's the name of the game. Each piece has its own position, its own ability, and its own limitations. And good chess players learn to control their pieces in three phases. In the opening phase, a good chess player will make strategic moves to open up the most powerful pieces they have to affect the board. Depending on the player, they may decide to be more defensive, or they may choose to try and end the game early with risky, aggressive plays. In the middle game, though, called the, mid, called the middle phase or the mid game, the player tries to open up the board. It's all about getting pieces off, getting pieces out of the way. The goal here is to, to remove those powerful strategic pieces so they can get to the king. As they do this, though, players have to make sure they defend their king because their opponent is trying to do the same thing. The goal of this phase is not so much about getting the king at this point. It's about controlling the board and getting the king in a position where you can get a move on, make a move on him. And then it's about getting to what's called the end game. The end game is where the strategy of a particular match all kind of comes together. At that point, there's only a few pieces left on the board, and the king usually switches from running away from everything to going on the attack. It's probably the most exciting part of any game because, really, it's where each player is trying to get the win. And while you may make some mistakes in the opening or you may make some mistakes in the mid-game, you can't afford to make any mistakes at this point in the game. A good chess player will recognize the phases of the game as they happen, and they will adjust their strategy to the moves that their opponent is making. Serious players will study and memorize move progressions so that when they see certain situations on the board, they know all the possibilities that can happen and they know how to react to them to get the win. Sometimes a player is so good and that when they hit this point in the game, the game is actually as good as done. The, the victory is already given to one person, but they still have to make the moves in order to claim checkmate. The thing that makes a chess player good is not just that someone knows what moves to make, but that they also know when to make those moves. It's about timing. Timing is everything. That's true with chess, it's true with life, and it's true with the gospel and the story of redemption. In the biblical view of God's sovereignty, we see that not only does God accomplish his purposes and carry out his perfect plan, but he also does it with perfect timing, just as he is appointed to do. Tracing our way through the story of the Bible, we can see that God has created the world, that he has purposed it for his glory. The scriptures reveal to us how God has sovereignly worked to direct human history according to his purpose in the plan of redemption. In the progression of that redemptive history, we have witnessed God's great works, which interpreted by his word, bring us finally to the climax of the cross, where Jesus fulfilled God's great promises and where he ushered in a new age, establishing a new covenant of grace and the shedding of his own blood for us. Ephesians 1, verses 7 through 12, put it like this. In him, that's in Christ, 
we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. And Paul goes on to say, In him you also When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. When we talk about the cross of Christ, we are talking about more than just the event which, by which our sins are atoned for. In truth, we are talking about the climax of redemptive history. We are talking about the fulfillment of all God's promises. We are talking about the ushering in of a new era and a new covenant and a new hope that is unshakable, a promise of divine glory, which is given to us in God's perfect timing, according to the purposes he had set forth before he ever laid down the foundations of the world. In Christ, something changed radically and wonderfully. With his death, resurrection, and ascension, we have been secured. Death no longer reigns over us. Sin no longer has its indomitable power over us. The war of separation between us and God is no longer. Death is dead, freedom is ours, and life is ours to live. That is the gospel. These are great and amazing things. And I suppose I could probably just end my sermon right there. Because what you need to know is contained in all those words. But what I want to do this morning, really, is to look at a passage where we see how we can know that these things are true and how it is that we are to live in this new era that Christ has ushered in. You see, we find ourselves in what we might call the end game of redemptive history. In the Old Testament, God was preparing the world for the coming of Christ. In the work of Christ, our Lord has made his move against sin and death and has defeated them at the cross and in his resurrection, removing the power of Satan over us. And now, in these final days, God is working that effect out over us, sending us out to take the gospel of salvation to the world. He's working to redeem the lost, to sanctify and purify his people, and to prepare the world for the great day of his coming when the victory of Christ will finally and fully be felt. In that day, 1 Corinthians 15 says, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Now that's what we're waiting on. That is our hope, the culmination of our hope. But as we await that great day, there is work to be done. 
And so it is helpful for us to consider the changes that have taken place for us in Christ and to press in to what he's accomplished for us. And that's what I want to look at with you this morning as we look at Acts 19, verses 1 through 7. Which let's, let's read that now. If you will, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. And there were about 12 men in all. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God for it. Please be seated. I have a lot to say about this passage. It's only seven verses, and yet the struggle I had this week was what not to say. So I hope that we have compiled all that for you this morning, looking specifically at this progression that we have and the reality we live in as believers. As we look at the book of Acts, it's been a while since we first started. The book of Acts, just to remind you, is we could think about it really as volume two of the Gospel of Luke. The book of Acts picks up where the Gospel of Luke leaves off. And in his Gospel, Luke shows us the inbreaking of the kingdom of God into the world through the work of Christ. And in the book of Acts, we see how Jesus has expanded that kingdom out through the work of his people. The book of Acts is a book that transitions us into the realities of what Christ has accomplished. And our passage this morning is particularly focused on that transition. Luke has recorded for us an interaction that Paul had with about a dozen disciples who were effectively living in the old covenant of redemption. While they were anticipating Christ, they were apparently unaware that he had come. And so as as an apostle, as a witness of the resurrected Jesus, we see Paul helping these men to see the completion of God's work in Jesus. And as he does this, he leads us to consider how that transition has, has happened and the implications of that work for us. There are a number of details in this passage that call to mind some of the earlier events in Acts that we've already seen. There are echoes here in Ephesus of Pentecost which we saw previously in Samaria and also the house of Cornelius, which announced to us that a new age has been ushered in by the work of Jesus. And Luke's aim here by recording this event is to drive that reality home so that we will live accordingly with it. So the main idea of this passage is this. Christ is the terminus or the end point, the fulfillment of our hope of old, and the anchor of the hope that we have today. Christ is the terminus of the hope of old and the anchor of the hope that we have today. So in our three points this morning, what I want to do is I want to draw your attention to three changes that have come about through the work of Christ, 
which is to say this. In Christ, we have received three things. We have received a new spirit, we have received a new baptism, and we have received a new age. So let's first look at this new spirit that we have received. In order to rightly apply and understand the book of Acts, we have to remember Luke's purpose. And to know his purpose, we actually have to go back to his introduction in his gospel. His goal, he says, has been to write down an orderly account of the life and the work of Jesus so that his readers may have certainty concerning all the things that we have been taught. That same purpose flows from the gospel of Luke over into the book of Acts. And so we must say that the purpose of the book of Acts is first and foremost to describe all these things to us so that we may see the strong and sure foundation of our hope and our faith. These things that we believe are grounded in God's work in human history. And Luke has provided us a firm foundation to see how Christ has expanded his kingdom into the world. Since that is the first purpose of the book of Acts, we have to keep in mind as we read it that not everything in the book of Acts is meant to be taken prescriptively. For example, we shouldn't think that Paul going to Jerusalem to offer the, the sacrifice associated with the Nazarite vow is meant to be repeated today. That would actually be very difficult because the temple is not there. We must all, always allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. And as Paul himself tells us, those who are in Christ are not under the rules and the ordinances of the law of Moses, but they are in Christ. So we need to bear that in mind as we look at the book, at, as we come to Acts 19, because in describing Paul's return to Ephesus, Luke is saying something to us about the transition that has taken place for us in the work of Christ. <clears throat> he has fulfilled the hope of old, and he has ushered in a new era and a new kingdom, which we enter into by faith in him. The old is passing away, the new has come. That's what we're told in Hebrews 8, verses 5 through 13. And the evidence of this has to come specifically with the coming of a specific blessing, the promised Holy Spirit who comes to those who are united to Christ by faith. Now we left off last week with the brothers in Ephesus commending Apollos and sending him to do ministry in the area of Achaia. Now in chapter 19, Luke tells us that it happened that while Apollos, after he had been sent out, and while he was at Corinth, which is the leading city of Achaia, that Paul passed through the inland country and arrived at last in the city of Ephesus. God had allowed him to return, as he said he would do, and I'm sure that if you were one of those, if you were there in Ephesus, you would have been really excited to see Paul. Uh, I'm sure that especially Aquila and Priscilla were glad to see their old friend back. Now, having arrived in the city, Luke tells us that Paul found some disciples there, though in his conversation with them, we quickly realize something is not quite right. Luke calls them disciples, but they were, not apparent, they were apparently not disciples of Jesus. They were disciples of John the Baptist. And consequently, they were missing some crucial information about how God had fulfilled what John had spoken about. I'd love to know exactly what it was that prompted Paul to ask these people if they had received the Holy Spirit when they believed. Maybe, maybe that's something he asked everyone, but really I, I'm inclined to think that as Paul spoke with these men, he quickly realized there were some very crucial things missing from them. 
their, their response to the question is actually, I think, a little disturbing. They say to Paul, no, we, we didn't receive the Holy Spirit when we were baptized. In fact, we, don't, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. I say that that response is disturbing for at least two reasons. First, the Spirit of God is spoken about throughout the Old Testament, starting in Genesis 1. And yet, these men are either ignorant of that or they've simply not really understood the distinction of the Spirit. Second, John the Baptist himself spoke about the coming of the Holy Spirit. And as disciples of John the Baptist, you would expect that they would have been aware of this. Luke pays them the dignity of calling them disciples, but it seems that they had not really understood what John the Baptist taught. It's likely that these men had become disciples through other disciples of John who had gone out and preached the same message of repentance that he had preached. That would explain why they would have been unaware that there even was a Holy Spirit. I suppose that those disciples simply had not yet told them the rest of what John had said about the coming of the Messiah. One way or another, it's clear that though they had believed and been baptized in the tradition of John, they were missing the full message that John had come preaching. If we go back to the Gospels, we're told that John the Baptist came in fulfillment of what the prophet Isaiah had spoken. He was the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, preparing the way of the Lord. In the spirit of Elijah, he had come, calling the house of Israel to repentance, announcing that the one, there, there was one coming after him who would baptize them in fire and in the Holy Spirit. Now, these men apparently missed that part of John's message. They were unaware of the Messiah that John meant to point them to, and they were unaware of the gift of the Holy Spirit who had come as a result of his work. So as we look at these men, they really seem to represent, I think, Old Testament saints who lived by faith in the faithfulness of God and his promises, looking forward to the day of redemption that God had spoken about in the Law and the Prophets, I think their faith and their their hope and their belief was genuine, but clearly they were missing a full picture of what God had accomplished in Christ. They had faith in the Redeemer of Israel, but apparently they did not yet know his name or the extent of his work. They knew God's call to repentance, but they did not yet know the full message of good news of redemption in Christ. They did not have union with Jesus, and consequently we see that they did not have the gift of the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit either. This connection between faith in Christ and the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit is absolutely key. Paul brought it up to these men, and I bring it up here because the gift of the Holy Spirit is part of that new covenant promise that had been fulfilled in and by Christ. The Holy Spirit lives and dwells and works in all who were joined to Christ by faith. He is essential to our faith in Christ and to our life in Christ. It's part of how Christ fulfills that hope of old. If we, if we go back to passages like Jeremiah 31, 31, if we go back to the prophet Ezekiel, we will find God promising not just to redeem people, but to give them a new heart and to give them a new spirit and to establish with them a new covenant, not like the old that was broken, but that was new in him. 
And so when Jesus, at the Lord's Supper, says to his disciples, handing him these symbolic elements of his own body, of what he's about to do, and says to them, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you, the blood of the new covenant. He's not just using symbolic gestures. He is ushering something new in. And that is how we see the promise of the Holy Spirit fulfilling it, marking that this is true. Now, there are many places we could go to see the connection between saving faith and the gift of the Holy Spirit, but I will limit it to two. I told Jared before this, I spilled the beans about everything I was going to preach to Jared before we started because he's doing Gospel Project right now. But I told Jared the hardest part of preaching this passage has been to know what not to say. So we're going to limit it to two. First John, uh, in John 1, 7, uh, verses 38 through 39, Jesus says this, and, and listen to this. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then John explains to us, now this he said about the spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So in this statement, Jesus identifies himself as the source from which this promised Spirit proceeds out to us. Those who believe in him receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, who comes as a result of his completed work. So you see how the hope of old is fulfilled in Christ and how the promise therein, the riches therein, to flow out of Christ onto us if we are joined to him by faith. Those who, re- who believe in Christ receive the gift of the Spirit. and we rece- As we receive Christ by faith, so we receive the Spirit. The Spirit comes as a result of Jesus' work, fulfilling the promise spoken of him in the Scriptures. The second passage I'll take you to. Is Ephesians 1, verses 13 and 14. Paul says that in Christ we have received an inheritance, having heard the word of truth, which is the gospel of our salvation. And having believed in him, we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. The point being that Paul is making here is that we have the Spirit of God as a result of the work of Christ for us, and that the abiding presence of the Spirit serves to guarantee for us our hope of eternal life. There are only two instances in the New Testament where the presence of the Holy Spirit came on people after they had believed. It came at at Pentecost and at Samaria. Both of those instances happened in transitional periods between the Old and New Uh, between old and new. Nowhere else in the Bible do we see such a separation, including here. And that's a connection I want you to see. As, As Paul investigated the faith of these men, he found that there was an absence of the Spirit. And we understand now that there was, that absence was there because there was an absence of faith. They had not yet heard that the hope that they had, the hope of old had been fulfilled in Christ. And so in verse four, Paul, Paul tells them, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. So Paul is taking John's message, which is right, 
and explaining it to these disciples in a fuller way so that he can point them then to the one who fulfilled that promise, who is Jesus. And upon hearing this, we see they believed it. And after believing the gospel, we see that they did in fact receive the Spirit. By faith, they received Christ as their Savior. And by faith, they received the abiding presence of the Spirit who set to work in them and served as a guarantee of their hope. The Bible knows nothing of life in Christ apart from a life in the Spirit. Romans 8 tells believers, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. You think about John chapter 1, where he says he gave the right to be called children of God to those who believed in him. Well, how, what does the Spirit do? He assures us that we are. Brothers and sisters, I am convinced that within our circles, we tend to ignore the importance of the work of the Holy Spirit. Maybe it's because we are afraid that we might, be, we might associate ourselves with some who have misunderstood and mischaracterized the Holy Spirit and what he does. But the reality of the Spirit is something that we cannot afford to neglect or to ignore. The arrival of the Holy Spirit confirms to us something about the completion of the work of Christ. The Spirit has come because Christ has died and risen and been exalted. Jesus told his disciples, it is to your advantage that I go, because if I do not go, the Spirit will not come. The Spirit is given to us to to be our comforter, to be our intercessor, our guide, our equipper, our, our, our guarantee of what is to come. The Puritan John Owen argued that the reason Christians can come to have certainty about the word of God, the reason we are able to pray, the reason we are able to be comforted and to comfort, able to follow Christ in obedience, is because of the gracious and powerful work of the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit who convicts us about sin and righteousness. It's the Spirit who points us to Christ and equips us with eyes of faith to see and understand and to trust in his work for us. The Spirit is the one who equips us and testifies to us about the truthfulness of Jesus' work and promise. He shows us that the new age has in fact dawned in Christ. And he works in us to equip us to fight sin and to live in righteousness. He binds us together as one, having one faith in one Lord, Jesus Christ, our Savior. And this is but one of the good gifts that we have received in Jesus. The second that I want to bring to your attention now is the new baptism. Now, a few weeks ago, we got to celebrate the ordinance of baptism with Bryson because he had professed faith in Christ, and he wanted to show the world that he is a disciple of Jesus. Baptism is an act of faith, a public profession of that faith, and a sign that we belong to Christ. As we look at the New Testament, we see uh, that we enter into that new covenant which Jesus established by faith, and we see the sign of that covenant is baptism and the Holy Spirit. When Paul met these disciples, they were lacking three essential things. They were lacking a saving faith in Jesus. Yes, they were looking forward to that promise, but they didn't know he had come. 
Second, they, they lacked an abiding presence of the Holy Spirit and even a knowledge that there was a baptism or that there was a Holy Spirit. And then third, they lacked the sign of baptism. They were living by faith in God's promises, unaware that he had brought those promises about. And in verse 5, we see all of this is remedied. Luke says that upon hearing Paul explain to them the purpose of John's ministry, how it culminated in Christ, how it pointed us to Jesus, they were baptized in his name. And when Paul laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them in power. So they received Christ by faith, which is shown in the way they received the mark of baptism, and they received the Holy Spirit. Having heard the truth of the gospel, they transitioned from a hope that was looking for God's work to be done to a conviction that he had done all those things in Jesus, whereby they received the, benefit, the benefits of his work and were joined to him by faith. Isn't it? I think it's peculiar that for, for how much Baptists, we bear the name Baptist in our name, right? It's peculiar, I think, that Baptists, though, seem to speak so little about their baptism, we get excited about baptism. We tell people that they need to be baptized, but it seems that we actually spend very little time thinking about our own baptism. It's, it's kind of something we did in the past and then we move on from it. Why, why is that? Maybe that's not the case for you, but I think it is in the case of a lot of people. Why is that? Well, I suspect that one of the reasons may be that we want to avoid a works righteousness. That, that is a good impulse. The act of baptism saves no one. You are not saved because you went down in a baptismal pool. You are not saved because a pastor pushed you under the waves in Lake Michigan. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But when we look at the New Testament, we see that it ties baptism and genuine saving faith very tightly together. Consider how Paul speaks in Romans 6 verses 3 and 4. Do you, not, do you know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So Paul is not saying, hey, you're saved because you're baptized. But he is using baptism as, as, as a way of referring to that faith that we have in Christ by which we are joined to him. It is they flow into each other. Or consider the words of 1 Peter 3. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And then connecting that to Noah and how God delivered him through the flood, he says, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. The point is this. Baptism and faith are meant to go together. They go together because baptism is a sign that we have entered into Christ and his covenant of grace by faith. Baptism communicates in a physical way that a spiritual change has taken place. It identifies us with Christ like a jersey identifies someone as a member of a team. It identifies us with that hope we have 
that God has fulfilled his purposes and his promises in Christ and that Christ is coming again, just as it did here with the Ephesians 12. They heard the good news of Jesus. They heard how God had fulfilled his promises to him. They believed the gospel. They obeyed the gospel and they received the marks of genuine faith, baptism and the Holy Spirit. In the Great Commission, Jesus commanded his people to make disciples and to baptize them teaching them all that he had commanded them. Here in Acts 19, we see how Paul was obedient to that command. But more than that, we can see how baptism is meant to play an important role in communicating in a physical way how we have been spiritually joined to Jesus by faith. So baptism is meant to play an important role, not just at one moment in your life, but as a reminder to you that you are in the good, you are in good standing with Christ, that you have been unified with him. It's meant to give you ammunition in the fight against sin. I don't serve that king anymore. I serve King Jesus. Sin no longer has dominion over me. I have been united to Christ. I have died to sin. I'm living for Christ. His spirit is in me. Just as he was baptized into my death, so I have now joined him in his life. That's what baptism is meant to do. It is meant to serve as an important reminder of the new covenant we have in Jesus. And that brings us to our third point, this new age we receive in Jesus. As we look at the men in Ephesus, we see 12 men who believed, but not, but not according to knowledge. Their, their understanding and their faith was incomplete until the gospel was preached in its fullness to them. Now, Paul didn't record this to disparage these men? Not at all. He recorded it to show us the superiority of Christ, how he is, in fact, the yes and amen of all of God's promises. He is the fulfillment of the hope of the saints of old. He is the redeeming seed, the better, the, the new and better Adam, the perfect law giver and promise fulfiller. He is the one who baptizes with fire in the Holy Spirit. He is the hope of the nations. In his ministry, John the Baptist never claimed to be the Christ. He always pointed people forward to Christ, telling them, I am not even worthy to untie the thong of his sandal. As the last of the Old Testament prophets, he had told his disciples concerning Jesus, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Before Christ came, God spoke in many times and in many ways through the law and the prophets, through people like John the Baptist. But when Christ came, the author of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 1, When the Son of God took on a human nature and entered the world, God spoke a better word. He fulfilled his perfect law and his perfect promises. Through his active obedience, Jesus did what we could not do. And then in his death, he made atonement for sin and secured a new covenant of grace for us. In his resurrection, Jesus secured life and glory for us so that death no longer has dominion over us. In his exaltation, Jesus has been crowned with authority. He has given us his own Holy Spirit 
and he is making all things new. We have a great high priest who does not serve a copy or a shadow of the heavenly things. We have a great high priest who has obtained a ministry that is much greater. Says the author of Hebrews says, the covenant he mediates is better. In fact, he goes on to say, he has made the first covenant obsolete. Already it is growing old and is ready to vanish away. The covenant of Christ stands forever. All these things have happened in fulfillment of God's word, and they have secured for us a better hope and a better inheritance for the future. I've been having conversations lately with Titus ever since my grandmother passed away in May. We've been having a lot of conversations about death. And I can tell it's weighing on Titus. And it is so good to be able to say to him, buddy, you don't have to worry about that. Because Jesus killed death on the cross. And he rose again from the grave. He has ushered in a new era. And one day the world we live in, which is so marked with cruelty and hate and sin and wickedness, it will not be that way. It will be new, and you will rejoice when you see Jesus' face because he loves you. That's a real hope. We have future. We have a future. We do not have to fear the here and now. We don't have to worry about the past or let those things define us because Christ has ushered in a new era. Friends, we need to recognize what God has done because it has implications for here and it has implications for tomorrow. We live in the victory of Christ. God has kept his promise. He has sent his son. He has poured out his spirit on his people. The hope that we have for the future is a hope that is based in the completed work of Jesus on the cross. You know, sometimes in a chess game, a chess master will come to a point in the game where the game is done. It's done. There is nothing their opponent can do. They still have to play the pieces out, but it's over. And that is similar to what Christ has accomplished on the cross. Victory is there. It's done. The pieces are being moved and victory is assured. And we live in that period now, having trusted in what Christ has done for us, being assured of, of that future that we have in him. We get to live in anticipation of a day when we will live in the fullness of that promise where we will experience what it means to be holy, where we will no longer wrestle with sin, where we will have the a full assembly of God's people before us testifying about the great grace of Christ. That is the guarantee of our hope. What the Ephesians 12 got to experience was the, the satisfaction of Jesus' promise. This was something out of the, a little bit out of the ordinary, but it is an important moment in the expansion of the kingdom of God because it says something to us about the way that the new age has come in Christ. These men were effectively Old Testament believers who got to experience Joel 2, where God speaks of the new and better things that he was bringing, that he was going to pour out his spirit on his people. One minute they had not even heard the spirit existed, and the next they were getting to experience the reality of the spirit in the new age that has dawned in the work of Christ. What a confidence that must have given them. What a confidence that that ought to give you that the gospel is true. As we look at this, this is where it was difficult to know where to cut. I could preach this sermon, I think, three, time, three Sundays over. There are people who use this passage to sow doubt 
with people who are true followers of Christ to say that if you haven't had an experience like this, you aren't saved. But when we look at the completed work of Christ and we see the requirements for entering into covenant with him, we see that we are not saved because we speak in tongues or because we prophesy. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ and the spirit is given accordingly. And in the book of 1 Corinthians, we read that not all speak in, in tongues, not all prophesy. And there is a purpose and a place for this. So rather than get caught up in that conversation, what I want, I, I like, what I, when we talk about God's word, I want to maximize what we need to live on right now. Uncertainties, we can let those, we can talk about those. But in, in when we're standing here and we're living under the authority of God, we need to see what's being said here in the context of Luke. What Luke wants you to see is that the promise of Christ have come true, that this is real, and the abiding presence of the Spirit is here and now. And this is meant to help you in your faith recognize the work of the Spirit that is at work. So look deeper beyond these particular things and see the reality that in Christ, the hope of salvation has been fulfilled. Understand that if you are in Christ, if you have trusted in his name, this same spirit is yours. 1 Corinthians 6, 11, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. Having been united with Christ by the spirit, so we are also united with each other. Ephesians 4, 1 through 6, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Live in this reality of Christ. Live with humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the body of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to live in the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, on God the Father, one God and the Father of us all, who is over all and through all and in all. So the point is this. All God's promises point to Christ, and all the promises we have from Christ are secure in him. The time of unbelief, the time of ignorance, that is past. The time for faith has come. As Paul says in Acts 17, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to believe because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man he has appointed. And of this, he has given us assurance by raising him from the dead. In Christ, we have received a new spirit to walk in his holiness. In Christ, we have received a new baptism, being joined by faith to him. And in Christ, a new age has been ushered in, which calls us to repentance and faith as we wait in hope of the day of his return. Let's pray. Lord, this morning we have looked at some deep and important issues. We have looked at something of the majesty of the glory of Christ, how he has ushered in for us a, a new age. He has fulfilled the promises of old. He has given us his spirit. He has united us with himself. Lord, in your word, we see that there is a great separation between us and you because of our sin. But it is a separation that is no longer because Christ has come. And we see the evidence of that in our passage this morning. So, Father, we confess to you that there are many things in our own faith and our own understanding and knowledge of you which 
which need to be honed, need to be shaped, need to be further conformed into Christ. And we pray, Father, that you would do that. But as we do, Father, we, we, we pray this in faith, knowing that you have given your spirit for just that work. And Lord, this morning, as we've considered the essential nature of the Holy Spirit, not just how he announces the completion of the work of Christ for us, but as he continues that work in us even today, Lord, we pray that he would take this word and give us a confidence, that he would give us a hope that the promises for the future, which we can't touch or taste or test right now, we know that they are sure because we have a faithful word. Lord, like the, like the letter that a king might send out calling his subjects to himself, that they may carry that letter and know that when they come to the gates, they will not be refused. So the Spirit assures us as the guarantee of our hope that when we come and stand before you, though we deserve your wrath because of our sin, we will be able to look at you in your face and know and not see a frown, but know that we have been redeemed because at your right hand stands our Lord Jesus Christ who gave his own body and his own blood to save us. Lord, we thank you for the victory of Christ and we pray for strength to live that out today. And Lord, as we pray this for ourselves, we also want to lift up to you people in our own community who do not know you as their Savior yet. <clears throat> Maybe, Lord, they don't understand that their sin has consequences. Maybe they don't believe that you even are. Lord, we pray that your spirit would move in our city, our community, and our homes in such a way that those sorts of denials of your truth would just be absolutely bankrupt and that people would see and savor Christ as their king and that as they do, Father, that they will have that promise of eternal life not just a promise of, etern of eternity, but a promise of perfection and glory and holiness as we become heirs with Christ by faith. Lord, we pray for faithfulness, and we pray that we would trust in this and, and, and rely on your assurance. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.